Hi guys, welcome to Daddy Square. Okay, I'd like Am to... Am I sound re- too gay? Yeah, can we start that again? Let's start it again. Hello, this is Daddy Square episode. <laughs> that, welcome. Was, that was the butch version, just so Welcome to another episode of Daddy Square. We're coming towards the end of the season and Alex and I are very nervous because we kind of will we'll miss you. Well, it's true. I actually am really going to miss doing this each week, but uh, we'll start up again in the new we'll, year. We'll come back in the spring, like flowers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this week uh, was Hanukkah. Yes. And uh, uh, For those who don't know, Hanukkah is a Jewish holiday that we celebrate. It's true. Right around Christmas. Yeah, usually a little bit before. So those who say happy holidays usually mean both of them. Right. New Year's too. You you bundle oh. it all up together. And yeah, there's a and Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa. Well, I don't think many people really celebrate celebrate Kwanzaa. Anyway, but um, but I, I want to say that uh, there's there's something. Those of you who come from backgrounds that are you know uh, tied uh, to a culture or a religion, particularly you know strongly. Uh, I think that many gays go through a phase, as I did, where, you know, you you sort of drift away from that because it seems very um, uh, heavy and uh, um, uh, conservative, etc. And then something really interesting happens, which is you have kids and you have the first Hanukkah uh, or any holiday. And then you see them sitting in front of the candles when they when you light the Hanukkah candles. And it has a really profound effect, at least it did on me, because it suddenly takes you back to your childhood in such a powerful way. And it it's, uh, it, it made me pretty verklempt. I'll say you guys can look up verklempt on Google if you want. It was a pretty, pretty powerful week for me as a result of that. Today we're going to talk about uh, legal stuff. So we brought on... Brett Rich- Kavanaugh. No, not Red Cat. <laughs> Sorry. We brought... Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> we brought... That's all I have. We brought uh, Richard Vaughn. I think it's double interesting. First of all, Richard is a uh, uh, lawyer that specializes in fertility, which is interesting by itself. But I think what's also interesting that he's the other half of Tommy, who we met in previous episode when we talked about, I'm going to say it with my Israeli accent, Dad Bod. No, that was perfect. Yay. You finally got it right. Oh, yes. Thank yes, God. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, we didn't actually speak with uh, Richard about his personal story because you've heard the story about Austin and Aiden. And if you didn't, you must go to episode three right now. Stop <laughs> and go there and listen to it. So we kind of focused mostly on the issue and we had a lot of questions. When you get into the process itself, you kind of forget all this part because you kind of focus on the surrogate and the egg donor. There is an, a legal process that is uh, nonetheless important. I, I would actually say something a little bit different and it was borne out by the interview too, which is that uh, unlike straight couple who has a few glasses of wine and nine months I later know. a baby pops out, in this situation everything is planned. You have to plan everything. You're, you're, yes, you're finding a surrogate and an egg donor and the medical and all of that. And the funny thing is that legal is the thing that ties all of that together. It's the agreements, it's the way the money moves around to make an IVF, uh, to make IVF kids uh, work and make it possible. And I, I thought that that was one of the things that was really special about this interview that we're about to hear. Yes, and uh, Richard himself is a dad, like we said, and uh, he did the whole process himself. So it kind of gives him an added value to the lawyering part. And also, Alex has argued with him. I argued with him? A little How rude. Bit. So that part was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to rehear that. I think we're ready. Let's, Let's go do to it. The, Let's go to, to the, the interview. interview. Here's Richard Bond. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you for coming to our podcast. I wanted, first of all, to, for you to kind of uh, give us an overview of what you do, 
because you specialize in specific side of, of lawyering, which is the fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you please tell us more about that? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I'm a parent through surrogacy and egg donation, which led me into um, fertility law as my um, career. My oh, occupation. you had been a different kind of lawyer before yes. that. I've oh, been practicing law for approximately 13 years before I transitioned into this area. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So? And since um, transitioning to this area, this has become my exclusive area of practice. So I do only assisted reproduction work, which is surrogacy work, egg donation, embryo donation, sperm donation, and sometimes step-parent or second-parent adoptions that are related to the surrogacy process when we're in a state that requires that for the parental establishment. Mm-hmm. Hey, but by the way, you just mentioned states, and I have a question about that. Um, is there particular value or need for you to be uh, licensed in multiple states because of the work that you do with surrogacy that probably goes on in multiple states? Well, um, yes, it would be valuable to be licensed in multiple uh, states. One of the things that makes my, my firm a little bit unique is we are a national law firm. So I, I have of counsel attorneys in each state so that as a law firm, I can service clients no matter where their surrogacy or egg donation is taking place it. because the laws do vary from state to state. Got it. Why is it important to have a lawyer involved in the surrogacy process? Because it's really easy to screw up if you try to do it yourself. <laughs> Give us some examples. <laughs> Give us some examples. I'm serious, of something though, that can go of wrong. really wrong. Well, um, you know, it, it's part you know, having a lawyer is is just one part of the team that you should be assembling when you're engaging in these kinds of arrangements because they are complicated. On the legal side of things, of course, you want to make sure that you have, you know, a properly drafted agreement that complies with the law of the state where your surrogate is going to be giving birth, if we're talking about surrogacy specifically. And if your lo- your contract does not comply, there's a possibility you would have a trouble establishing your parental rights. Which means what? What does that mean? Which means you may be, uh, it may be difficult for you to establish that you are the parents and the mm-hmm. presumption will be that the surrogate is, is the parent unless you do something through a court process. Now the court will you know, usually take evidence of the party's intent, so if your contract is poorly drafted, which happens when you don't use attorneys, the court may overlook it, but will be looking into things much more um, comprehensively doing background checks, having hearings, you know, ha- hearing evidence on the record. Whereas in many of these cases, if you do it properly, you don't have to go through all of that. You sign some paperwork, letting the court know you have an agreed petition, and it, it's fairly straightforward. Right. So other than uh, uh, making sure that you are the parent and when all of this is said and done, I assume that there are other things that can happen between you and the other parties, the the doctors, the surrogate, the egg donor, where what there can be uh, challenges in terms of what you've committed to pay, uh, stuff like that that is also covered in these types of agreements? Yes. I mean, these agreements cover... Um, quite a long list of things, including the financial terms and conditions between the parties. In surrogacy cases in particular, they also these agreements also establish what the requirements are for an escrow account. Mm-hmm. It's typical that you set up an escrow account so that there's money in place right. to pay the surrogate her fees and expenses. And that also includes requirements that there be certain amounts deposited into the escrow account at certain times, uh. that there be a minimum balance at all times, and that you keep that account open for a period of time after birth. And you know, tr- getting into trouble with proper funding of an account is a huge risk for the surrogate. Right. Right? Right. right. I mean, she's, if she's pregnant and she's not getting paid because the parents haven't properly funded, so having a team to be there by your side, including the lawyers, right. will help prevent a lot of those problems because they're looking down the road to see, for instance, what we'll do in our practice if we hold escrow for the client, we're looking at the balance on a regular basis. And if it looks mm-hmm. like it's getting low, will let them know so they can get some new funding in. Got it. Right. If you go through a, through an agency, usually the agency provides the lawyer who they work with, right? Is that how it works? or So many agencies have preferred attorneys that they like to work with just because over custom and, and, and practice over time, mm-hmm. they've you know developed relationships with you know contractors. I, I like to think of the agencies as a general contractor if you use the analogy to a, a construction project. Mm-hmm. And so they may have their own preferred subcontractors, the lawyers, the doctors, the psychologists, the escrow holders, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you get clients uh, through agencies and and clients that uh, approach you individually? Yes, I receive referrals from agencies 
and I receive um, clients independently who found me either through prior clients or who found me online. Sometimes is, podcasts can help. I'm just saying. Podcasts, yeah. What is the percentage of, uh, of clients who come to you individually? In find you? my practice, it's about 20%. Okay. So it's a fairly you know, sub- yeah. substantial number. Is it, is it your whole firm that, that focuses exclusively on this? This is all we do. Wow. Yeah, we That's do amazing. Somewhere in the range of 1,100 to 1,200 cases a year. So as a, somebody who was, what kind of law did you do before this? I'd done a variety of things. I started out doing uh, medical malpractice and personal mm-hmm. injury. Mm-hmm. I then transitioned into working for the city of Chicago. Okay. I was their head counsel for the Department of Cultural Affairs where we did lots of contracts, mm-hmm. which is where I got my contract experience. Got it. Then I did a little stint in asbestos defense litigation. A good, wow. good friend of mine helped me out when I needed some work, um, but I didn't like that work at all. Right. And then I was working in-house as an in-house counsel at a startup company that was doing medical devices. So mm-hmm. what's the, when you look at the nature of the work for you mm-hmm. uh, in your interaction with your clients, how's it differ uh, from what you used to do oh, in terms of the flavor of the work and the emotions that go on with your clients, et cetera? Absolutely, no, um, I've always tried to do work that I enjoyed but it wasn't until I found this area of practice that it was something that I was truly passionate about. Uh-huh. And having been through it personally, I understand what the intended parents are going through. I also understand quite well what the surrogates and the donors are going through. Right. And that kind of personal connection to what's actually happening underneath all of the legal documents is, I think, really critical to being a better asset to the clients. And right. th- so it's a very, it's a warm personal experience. You know, at the end yeah. of the day, I get baby pictures. <laughs> Most lawyers are miserable oh, right. you know, because they're fighting over money or you know corporations or whatever. But right. you know, we're making families here. Yeah, right. the pictures you get after the asbestos cases are not as good. <laughs> no, we're near just it. not as good. From what I remember from our process, uh, the only contract we had was with a, a egg donor and with a surrogate. Oh no 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 no! Oh, believe me, no. We oh. had an agreement with um, the agency. Okay, that you did. We that had too? an agreement with the with the doctor. Okay, yeah, would, I, I can outline so, for you. Yes, yeah, you right. Why am I telling you? I no, think no, what kind of a professional here? So you would typically have an agency if you're right. if you're being matched with a surrogate or donor through an agency. So right. you may have two agencies, or you may find your donors and surrogates at the same agency. Right. Okay. You will have written agreements with the clinic. These are usually called informed consent documents mm-hmm. because. In these documents, the doctors need your consent before they proceed, so they should, in writing, or they, most clinics will do this in writing, explain the procedures, the medications, the risks to those things, the benefits, the goal right. of those things, and then the alternatives, and then you sign your consent saying, yes, I want to yeah. go forward. Um, then you'll have contracts with the donor and contracts with the surrogate, mm-hmm. and uh, there's additional legal work that, that follows after that, including guardianship documents and then the, the parental establishment court process. Right. You don't oh, remember. Yeah, remember. You don't remember. That. We basically took out the crayon <laughs> and just signed endless pieces of paper without <laughs> knowing what the hell we were signing. The yeah. analogy to construction or building a house <laughs> is is quite absolutely crystal clear because in in you know buying a house you've got escrow and you've yeah. got tons of documents that you're signing. Some of them electronically, yep. and you just click, 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 <laughs> click. Um, and you, in many of these situations, at least with the informed consent documents at clinics, you know it's a lot of stuff that kind of goes over your head unless right. someone's really explaining it to you. Right. And actually, that leads a, to a question for me. So, how much of this work has become boilerplate? Meaning, sure, obviously there are some tweaks based on whether there are twins or not or what have you, but um, I've got to assume that there isn't a tremendous amount of detail negotiation going on between the prospective parent and, uh, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the doctors and the, uh, the surrogate and the egg donor and the agency. It's a relatively well established by now, right? What what the parameters are of the agreements? Absolutely, the agency retainer agreements, uh, pretty much are standard. They do not tend to negotiate them. There might right. be small tweaks that they might make if you have a question or a change, but most of them won't negotiate changes. Right. The medical consent forms; those are preset. They are explaining 
medications and procedures. So there's really nothing in there you're going to change. You just need to make sure you understand them. Right. The contracts that we draft, of course, to make us efficient, we have to start with templates. Mm -hmm. And then we customize the templates based on the information provided to us by the parties or by the agency that are specific to that match. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot that is very, I wouldn't say Boilerplate has a negative connotation, yeah. but but it is very template-oriented. Uh -huh. Most of this stuff is very collaborative, so you don't find yourself in heavy, you know, knock-down, drag-out That would be bad when you're about to make a baby with the right. person. Exactly, yeah. exactly. When you do the contract with the egg donor, do you do it from the side of the egg donor or from the side of, of the client? When I have drafted contracts, egg donor contracts for parents, and I have drafted the egg donor contracts for the donor. So okay. it can just depend on how the situation is presented to me. Okay. Uh, by and large, I, I tend to represent intended parents, but I, I have worked on for both donors, surrogates, right. parents. I've worked all sides of these arrangements. Do I vaguely remember that during hours, is it possible for, is a lawyer allowed to represent both parties in an agreement? That is usually a matter of state law, okay. and the state bar in each state can sort of regulate as to what I, types of law can be done with right. joint representation. There are some where you can't, right. but you know, in a state where you can jointly represent both sides, you have to explain that there is a conflict of interest, right. Right. and that the parties need to understand it and then waive that conflict if they wish to proceed with so one attorney. Should they? Um, you know, in many cases, I think it's it's ideal, it's best practice to have separate representation. That's where this industry is heading. Mm -hmm. There have been, in, in the past, more arrangements that were handled with joint representation because they are so collaborative. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, if an issue does arise, as with any lawyer's representation, if a conflict actually arises, that lawyer should withdraw from the representation and right. may only continue representing one party if the other party agrees, or they just withdraw completely and, and okay. each party gets new attorneys. But right. these kinds of things don't really erupt. These conflicts right. don't really erupt, because they are pretty straightforward. Right. What are the legal actions that are taken to protect uh, anonymous egg donors? You mean the anonymity of the egg donors? Yeah. Well, in the egg donation agreement, we list typically either a, a donor number or an alias, and the parents also have a, a parent number or alias, so that the contract itself does not contain any real names. Mm -hmm. the, and then we, dis, we discuss the idea there's a possibility that the parents may need medical information in the future. Let's say they have a child, and 10 years later the child has some kind of disease that right. has a genetic component. They might need medical records from mm -hmm. the donor. And so in these contracts, we say that if they need them, they are allowed to have non-identifying medical records. So she agrees to provide them, but her name, her social security number, her address, or anything that could identify her would be stricken from those medical records. Mm -hmm. So that's the arrangement that's put in place. In reality, the idea of true anonymity is, is probably more elusive than it looks on paper because it's very easy with you know, facial recognition and yeah. Google, and you, know, you could find somebody pretty quickly. I mean, the yeah. amount of data that we saw about our egg donor was vastly more than is necessary to find her. We did not look uh, because we, you know, we, we felt like we had promised. We wanted to. And of course we yeah. wanted to yeah. look. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. Uh, but so, so this is curious to me. So that data, that information, that mapping, is it held by the law firm? Where... I mean, 10 years from now, who knows what happens? How do we find each other if we need to? So the if you're matched through an agency, they will have all parties' real information. Uh -huh. The clinic will also have all parties' real information. Uh -huh. The lawyers will have all parties' real information. I see. Sometimes parties elect to register with what's called donor sibling registry, oh. where you can register with an anonymous profile. So donor number 1234 really? sets up a profile, and you set up your parent profile anonymously, and you can actually email each other anonymously oh, yeah. through the registry. I love it. Wait, is this a So this is great, thing? except it is a third-party company now that has all of your information, so oh. God forbid they get <sighs> hacked, but you know, it's just another mechanism right. for future communication. Wow, that's interesting. Wait, so is that a state, is that a government-based thing, or is it a company? It's a private company based that's out of Colorado. There hysterical. used to be more than, than one registry, now right. there's only the one left. Well, so, you know, it's a question as to how long they'll be around, but they seem to be providing a service for, yeah. you know, for a lot of people who are interested in that. 
That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so we know that uh, our egg donor previously donated eggs, which became a baby. So they have half siblings somewhere. Mm-hmm. Are they entitled to, when they grow up, to go in and look for it legally? Well, here's her? the thing about the egg donation agreements that the parents and donor sign. The child's not a party to that right. contract. There's nothing binding that child or limiting that child from searching. But one of the growing questions we have in the industry is what are the rights of the child? And should we be addressing that somehow in these agreements? So far, we're not, really. Do you think that we should? It, more and more... I'm getting questions from intended parents who want to know how do we reach out to the donor? How do we perhaps have the child meet the donor if the child is curious? So I'm getting more and more questions about that. And I think people, as they think forward to the next 15 or 20 years, yeah. they now see down the road that maybe we need to you know, create some pathway toward that information. So I think we're going in that direction. In many other countries of the world, the rights of the child are the primary concern. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, I mean, this is, we're allowed to do opinion here on this podcast. <laughs> I, I, My kids are only three, so I don't know how painful it will be for me if one day they start begging for that information. But I, 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 I don't see it. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this woman did this thing with an understanding. Uh, we agreed to that understanding. I believe tough shit is in order. Like, I don't understand. Well, well what am I really taking what something the away so to the ch- from the child that he can't find the person who donated his egg? Big deal. So, Where are his parents? So, so tough cookies to the child or tough cookies to the donor? No, no, tough cookies to the child. The donor didn't want to be found. Let her not be found. If she wants to be found, I don't know, there must be some mechanism by which she can say, hey – you know, if you gave birth, I don't know, but I, I just I, well, I feel just... like this idea that we should be able to seek her out when when she was twenty something years old, she decided to do something and she's moved beyond. I'm going to use conservative. I'm going to use your own, <laughs> I'm going to use your own words against Come on, you. Come bring it. So lawyer. we talked about the lawyer, the kids having temper tantrums. You talked about it at the I end of your last. With those, yes. yes, and it's about the child. Yeah, mm-hmm. not about you. Yeah, and if the child is interested, it's about the child. Not about you. Yeah, so if the child is true. curious, there's really nothing that's going to stop that. And you, we see that a lot in the adoption arena, which I don't do any work in adoptions, right. but it's a topic of conversation yes. that you know they should have a right to, to know if they're curious. I right. think that there's, A, a little bit of a difference between adoption and what we've done here. Absolutely. But B, just to be clear... Um, I'm not saying the child can't want to do whatever the child wants to do, and I'm not saying that it's about me. I'm saying it's about the egg donor. Now, I'm taking myself out of this picture all altogether, and I'm saying between the egg donor and my child, I think that the right of the egg donor to maintain whatever life path she has taken uh, trumps his what to me seems like curiosity. I agree, and if you think through it practically, let's say 15 years from now, the child is curious and just demands to know, you or I or your clinic or your agency could reach out to the donor and she could simply refuse to return any phone call. So it ultimately does rest with her as to what she wants to acknowledge, respond to, or not respond to. Sure. Uh, your kids are 10, so do they ever, do they yeah. ask? It's, so it's, it's, I, I, I was, I'm glad you, you brought us back <laughs> to that because I wanted to say something on that. It's really interesting. Um, of course, being gay dads, the kids knew from a very early age that we don't have a mom and a dad. And so they asked, and we said, look, there are all kinds of families. And that was the end of that story, very short and simple. As they got a little older, they they, they understood the surrogacy piece. Mm-hmm. They have not quite gotten to the point at 10 of understanding the donor piece. Oh. Although, interestingly, they have asked, you know, when I grow up, will I look like you or will I have brown hair like like Papa or you know, blue eyes like daddy or whatever. So they, they understand some of that. And so when, when they brought that up brought that up, I thought, okay, here, I've got the door open mm. and let's let's mention something about the donor and I, I did and it just went completely over the <laughs> Right, <rest>. right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they'll come back to it. Yeah. We've been telling our children that they were constructed in a factory and that they're not actually people. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. <laughs> You'd be surprised in the industry. Yeah. Many of us have been through this process mm-hmm. personally, but we also talk about our work. And so the kids know what we do for a living. Right. They grow up with this idea that this is the only way that kids are made. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. I love it. Um, 
we had a uh, one of our listeners uh, wrote us uh, their personal story um, about a beginning of a, a surrogacy process they had the agreement with the surrogate and before the implementation after she already started to take to take the drugs and everything like she started the process and then she decided she doesn't want to do it what happens in like legally what happened in these cases unfortunately that's just a risk that intended parents take we cannot force a woman to do something with her body that she does not want to do even if she's agreed in a contract to do this you cannot walk into court wave <laughs> your contract in the judge's face and say make her do this <laughs> that would right. be weird it's just not going to happen yeah. so you know y- the parents are at risk of, of those situations occurring the best way to prevent that you know sort of the, the best um, offense is a good defense kind of notion is to make sure that she's been properly screened by not only the agency but thoroughly screened by a psychologist and you know the doctor and and usually they're pretty committed by the time they get through all the screenings and you get through contracts so it's very rare that that happens but sometimes surrogates have life changes right suddenly they're divorced yeah right before the transfer and they just can't handle this thing right, right now um, or um, you may have something that happens in between transfer attempts let's say the first one didn't work and everyone's preparing for a second one you know I just had this happen where a surrogate was pregnant but had a miscarriage and lost a tube and she wasn't done building her family and and you know to go through another surrogacy for someone else before she is able to try again for herself mm-hmm. presented the risk that they decided they didn't want to take sure so that they could have a chance increasing right. their fa- so again there's really nothing that can be done yep yep you can put so. damages clauses in <laughs> contracts and, and such, but surrogates are not typically, you know, wealthy with lots of resources. Yeah, right. There's no point and in pursuing them. Yeah. You know. So, um, so, I mean, the question that comes to my mind is, so what does it good? Is it any good, uh, the, the contract with the surrogate at all? Does it mean anything? It is. It's supposed to, of course, define the parameters of the relationship, anticipate potential problems that could get really complicated if you didn't outline them ahead of time. Okay. So it serves a lot of purposes, but there are risks to this process. This is a very human process, and people get programmed. Let's talk about programming. They get programmed because there are lawyers, and there are doctors, and there are psychologists, and there are insurance contracts, and agency contracts, and science, and you get programmed to think this must go forward, and you forget the human element. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a very strong human element to this. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, that agreement with the surrogate is actually the foundation of the agreement that she will not be the parent of the child, right? In other words, it's the first document, and the only document until the child is born that lays out that agreement between you that she's not going to stake any claim to the kid. Right. It sets forth the intention of the parties that the intended parents will become the parents and the surrogate does not want to be, and that she agrees to cooperate with them in helping them establish their parental rights, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a key piece to this, this whole industry is uh, the notion of the intended parent doctrine, that if you define clearly, usually in writing, your intent to become the parent and you do so before the embryo transfer, then the intended parents will become the legal parents. Right, and if I can sort of jump over to this, I have to assume that that depends on the law of the land, right? And so that it raises this question for me. Do you guys do work overseas? or outside of the United States at all? We have clients coming from all over the world to the U.S. to engage Ah, in surrogacy, but I'm not licensed in other countries, so I cannot give advice on the law of other countries, although I know a lot about it and can give them some information and then point them in the direction of an attorney in that country to help them. But surrogacy is illegal in most countries or or just not practiced or not allowed by the doctors. So can you give advice to our listeners... Um, So can you give advice to our listeners in terms of, um, I I assume that the primary reason why Americans will do it outside of the United States is cost um, or availability. Should they do it or should they not? Well, when anyone wants to build a family, it's hard to tell them no. Mm -hmm. And uh, who am I to say that there's not another way to do it? But you're right, the primary driver of interest in surrogacy in other countries is cost. 
what we typically see in those countries are that the success rates are much lower. Mm. The costs for traveling back and forth are much higher. Mm. So you end up in not much of a different cost position in the end wow. after you had multiple failed transfers and multiple trips over to the Ukraine or, well, I mean, gay parents can't go to the Ukraine. They right. can't go to India anymore either. Right. But that's the, the, the allure is the cost. But the flip side of that is that there usually are, are more risks involved. Right. And in most other countries, they don't have the same very stable legal foundation that we have here, so they're taking even more risks with their parental rights. They may also be with a child that is born in this other country that is um, not able to get a passport to come home so, because yeah. we have you know, birthright citizenship here. Any child born here right. will um, be an automatic citizen, but if you go to the Ukraine uh, or India and your child is born there, the child does not have the right to a passport but from that home country. Now the U.S. is actually so that pretty cooperative and will will help get the child a U.S. passport for if the parent is a U.S. citizen. Right, if the parent is U.S. Remember citizen. that uh, in the conference we talked about this couple. One was Israeli and the other was was American. The other the other one American. Yeah, they did a surrogacy in Canada and they they had twins, one of each, and the child that is biologically. The American one got a passport. The child that's biologically the Israeli one did not. Mm-hmm. Do you? That's some crazy that shit. Too? Yeah. So, so the, the only thing I can really add to that scenario is it's very important in any kind of assisted reproduction to be speaking to an attorney before you begin, so you can find out not only what you have to do at the beginning, but what you have to do at the very end to get yeah. back home and to have your parental rights confirmed and to have the child you know, declared a citizen of some right. country so that a passport yeah. can issue for travel purposes. I have to say, I remember distinctly as we were getting closer to delivery and we were stuck in some horrible hotel up in or out in the middle of nowhere in Oregon waiting for this to happen, that that was the kind of last leg of this thing and we were exhausted and, you know, and now we had to worry about the paperwork for the um, for the birth, the birth certificates. And yeah, uh, we were very happy to have lawyers who were helping <laughs> us see to it that that was going to happen. Yeah, you're sleep deprived at that point. Yeah, so it was spooky. You, you still need your team. Yeah. Um, so speaking about the birth certificate, I remember that in our conversation before our babies were born, I asked you this, like, what does it take for us both to to be registered in a birth certificate? Because I know that it's not in every state, is it? Well, when we first started talking, it was around 2014, because Ben and Adam were born in 2015, right? Yeah. Remembers the birth date better than me. Yes. And of course, the Obergefell ruling in the Supreme Court came down in 2015, Mm -hmm. allowing same-sex marriage. And that's had a positive impact on parental rights and getting listed on a birth certificate in the US in any state if you are married. So, again, before you begin your surrogacy, you have to analyze which states in the U.S. are favorable to you given your particular situation. Are you married or not married? A lot of gay couples are not married, and that's okay, Mm -hmm. too. Um, And whose genetics will be used? And what citizenship do you have as the parents? Are you just U.S. citizens? Are you multinational? And, And in what countries will you want to register the child? Because all of these things affect how the birth certificate can be prepared and you need to know what if you're registering the child in another country you need to know what they want the birth certificate to look like right if it's two men and you're going back to israel israel will recognize that mm-hmm. but if you were in the netherlands or sweden you you may have to actually list the surrogate on your birth certificate with the biological father and then do a step parent adoption mm-hmm after you get back home. So you need to know these things ahead of time. In the US, there are many states where you, where, you know, a gay couple can get listed on the birth certificate, especially if they're married. So I went around. Why are you look so worried, Alex? No, I'm not worried. I'm, I, find, I find, I find, no, yeah, I'm not gonna make any jokes. Um, no, what I'm wondering, you mentioned Obergefell, which by the way is a word I can, I am amazed I just pronounced it properly, <laughs> Obergefell. Um, sounds like Yiddish to me. Anyway, um, why does why does my status, why does our status as married to each other have an effect on this issue when a straight couple, whether married or not, would it have any effect on them? Well, that's not necessarily 
true because an unmarried straight couple yeah. may have to go through additional procedures to have their parental rights recognized in a surrogacy case. Oh, they they may. Yeah, oh, yeah. I didn't. So I didn't yeah. know that. I assumed mm-hmm. that if they just both said this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So okay, well then that explains it. Sometimes you know some states are very surrogacy friendly and they're happy to give parental rights and list any parent on a birth certificate, whatever they need. Right. Um, other states are more conservative about what they will allow, and if it's an unmarried couple, they might make the unmarried other parent complete an adoption. Got it. And you typically have to go back to where you live to complete that adoption. And then you send that adoption order back to the birth state, and then they will add that second parent right. to the birth certificate. Interesting. So if I can just, I want to change to something a little bit different for a second. Um, for years now, for, I don't know, long time that I've known about surrogacy and IVF and all this stuff, the kind of the orthodoxy has been that the reason why you get an egg donor who is a different woman than the surrogate is because it dramatically increases uh, the, the the rights of the father in amongst those three parties uh, to the child. Uh, it's a protection of sorts, right? But it also multiplies the cost of doing this thing by a trillion because I have a friend who didn't do it that way and, forgive me, turkey baster later, uh, it's done. I mean, he paid one party, no doctors, you know, no, uh, there may have been a lawyer involved, but no egg donor. One party was paid. Thank God everything went great. Is that still a very risky thing to do? And therefore, let's all do IVF if we have the money to do it. So what you're describing is the difference between gestational surrogacy, where the surrogate is not the egg provider, and traditional surrogacy, which is now being termed genetic surrogacy, for lack <laughs> oh, of Lord. a better word. Okay. We'll, we'll stick with traditional surrogacy. Okay. And when surrogacy began in the 80s, it started out as the traditional type, mm-hmm. where the woman provided the egg and carried. And then we had the Mary Beth Whitehead case, the Baby M case um, from New Jersey, where a gestational surrogate at birth changed her mind and said, I want to keep the baby. Right. And guess what happened? The court said, yep, yeah, you're the mother. Right. Now, they went through several more years of legal battles, and the intended parents did win custody of their child. But really? she was still the legal mother okay. under the law in New Jersey. Now, flash forward, we had um, statutes passed in Michigan, New York, and D.C., which made surrogacy illegal. Just can't do it because we don't want that happening in our backyard. Right. Mm-hmm. And then what started happening is we started shifting from traditional to gestational because it removed one of the potential legal risks. Right. So it's very rare to see those cases. You still see them, and and people tend to do them for cost savings reasons. Um, But there are still some risks involved. Um, There is new legislation um, that was passed by what's called the Uniform Law Commission in 2017. They, They have this thing called the Uniform Parentage Act. And the Uniform Law Commission does lots of what we call uniform acts just for sake of creating uniformity among all the states. Okay. And a state can adopt it or not adopt it. But the new UPA, Uniform Parentage Act of 2017, says that in genetic surrogacy, the surrogate has a right to change her mind up to three days after birth. That, to me, seems really risky. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do it. Right. Right. Only, we're talking about a lot of money. Well, if you factor in the cost of you know, let's say the doctor's work for an egg donation cycle, mm-hmm. the donor's fee, mm-hmm. some expenses and insurance related to it. You're probably adding, you know, 20000 roughly, roughly. Let's say it's 5000 for the what agency. What about the IVF process? That was pretty expensive, wasn't it? It is, you but be doing that either. you probably had a global financial package with the clinic yeah. to do not only the egg donation, but also the surrogacy. So if you were to narrow it down to just the work that was necessary for an egg donation. You're probably talking about, you know, percentage. Well, I don't want to split hairs, hairs here, but in the other scenario I was talking about, you're not doing either of those things. You talk of the home insemination? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, yeah, that's, that's another layer of risk as well. Up, shacking up, call it whatever you want, yeah. but that is a perfectly... Uh, I mean, possible, and by the way, probably for thousands of years done approach 
to making a child is mm-hmm. you may not want to sleep with her, but right. you guys have an agreement, and then you get the kid, right. and it costs basically nothing, yeah, right? and, except and you, for what you pay her. Exactly, and you take your risks along right. the way. Right, agreed, yeah. Yeah. agreed. But there are people that will, will go that direction right. purely to save costs, and so one of the things that as an industry we're looking at is, is finding ways to lower the barrier to getting into this so that people do it safely right? Mm-hmm. rather than just focusing on cost-cutting. Sure. Because uh, when you when you just focus on cost-cutting, you end up taking other risks. Right. Oh, right. Lord knows we didn't focus on cost-cutting. <laughs> we focused in the opposite direction. Um, so speaking of this, how much does the, the whole legal stuff cost? What is the range? The, the legal stuff, just the legal yeah, fees. Just the legal stuff. You know, it can vary depending on what state you're in, but across the country, on average, if you're looking at not only the intended parents' attorney's fees, the court fees, the surrogate's attorney fee, and the donor attorney fees, you could be in the range of you know, 10 on the very, very low end to 20,000. Mm-hmm. So Does maybe it matter if you have twins or not? Usually not. Now, in a couple of states, Wisconsin being one of them, if you have twins, you have a separate filing. Really? <laughs> you have one filing for baby A and another right. filing for baby B. Uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so it can add some costs in a couple of different states. But for the most part, the legal mm-hmm. doesn't change whether you have twins or right. a singleton or triplets. Or and I forgot, this is a scenario where the prospective parents always pay for the the legal fees of the, of the egg donor and of the surrogate, right? Right. right. Probably not for, I don't know, legal fees of the doctor and the agency. They have their own... The surrogates and donors don't typically have fees with the agency. They don't pay the agency anything. No, no, no. I meant in terms of the lawyers that the agency uses, you're not really paying for those. Well, you're paying the agencies, so if, well, if <laughs> everything you, gets you covered in maybe an in-house lawyer who yeah. works with the agency? Yeah. They it's must usually, have It's incorporated. Right. Trust me. It's yeah, in the, it's in the cost estimate somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, we had a full episode about uh, co-parenting and we had a gay couple who co-parent with a lesbian couple and they talk about how important it was to have an agreement before they started the process do you also do that kind of contracts? Uh, many years ago we did um, do some co-parenting agreements it's just as our practice has shifted more toward pure assisted reproduction, we, we don't do that anymore. Because it's also related. I mean, what you did, what they did is IVF. So one of the parents is the dad mm-hmm. and one of the lesbian parents is the mother. Yeah. Um, so that would just sort of be a fringe thing to what I do. And mm-hmm. I try to focus on just my expertise. Okay. I know plenty of lawyers that do co-parenting agreements. They're a good idea. They're complicated and, and you have to address them very carefully. So that's why I don't want to like take the risk right. and do the wrong thing. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Well, wait. You know, it just occurs to me that I have, in all of our episodes, I've never asked this question. How many gay IVFs happen per year in America? Do you have a <laughs> guess? Do you have, I mean, we could Google it, but uh, I just wonder what that, what is Well, he the, knows only the, the cases that he's taking well, care of. Well, he works in the space, maybe, you know. It would be a, a number that I wouldn't be comfortable guessing <laughs> at off the top of my head. I do have some resources where I could go find out. Well, it's hard to say exactly, but you know, there are organizations like the American Society for Reproductive Medicine mm-hmm. and their sort of sister organization called SART, the uh, Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, okay. that track clinic data mm. on the numbers of cycles. And you know, if they are tracking the information on the uh, the parents themselves, gay, right. straight, single, then they would have that yeah. information. I think this is a wild guess. Yeah, guess. I'm trying to remember we, from guess, some and number. what we'll do is we'll come back after the episode and we'll grade Fact you on, check on yeah. yeah. <laughs> that there are approximately 6,000 cycles per year in the U.S., give or take. That are gay-related or just in overall, general? Overall. Uh, that is so much less than I would have thought. Yeah, you, it's surprising. but um, <laughs> Because, you know, where we live... Everyone, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all like gay all the time. Everyone's gay and um, everyone's having a child. But I would say, at least in my practice, uh, about sixty-five percent of my clients are same-sex couples or uh, gay singles. Right. Yeah. Amazing. 
Richard, thank you very, very much. We're going to put your uh, information on the website so people can, you know, ask you specific questions if they want to. Oh, great. Yeah, okay? Of course. Of course. Um, and give my best to Tommy and Aiden and Austin. I will. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having thank me. You. Thank you very much. That was Richard Vaughn. What a voice. Well, yeah, he's a, he can be a radio a presenter. really good po- podcast voice. Co-host for our next season. But I am still, uh, I, I'm still so surprised by how small the number of people who do this is per year, even if he's off by a lot, you know, 6,000 uh, per year. I thought we were in the hundreds of, of thousands uh, per how year. How many gay dads do you think no, there are? No, no, but this wasn't just gay. This was everyone oh. doing IVF. Um, look, it, part of it has to do with this, right? Um, when you do a thing that is very, very all-encompassing, like having children, I think you assume that everybody is. Yes. You know, and uh, that speaks a little bit to an episode that we have coming up about uh, uh, friendships yes. after after having kids. You know, so so I thought that that uh, it was great to talk to somebody who uh, focuses on this specifically on um, the the legal issues surrounding surrogacy. I was very surprised uh, by what he said about the relative balance of doing IVF overseas versus. In in the United States um, it sounds like from from his way of looking at things you might be able to save some money in some areas but you'll probably end up spending more in others and it uh, it, it sounds like it's still safer to do it uh, here in yeah the United States. remember that uh, you mentioned during the interview that time after the babies were born that we had to finish something with, with the birth, birth certificates, certificates yes. and gosh that moment when you told me no we don't have to do anything they'll bring it to us yeah and, you know with two babies and we're panicking yeah I thought oh my god thank God that we have this because yeah you just after the after the birth there's nothing that you want to do other than try to figure out what's happening when I think through w- what we went through um, in the the legal process and the business process of doing this um, We probably had one of the easier times. Um, I, I'd love to hear feedback from our listeners um, about you know what their experience was like. But we did, I think part of it was luck, but part of it was we used a series of professionals. We probably paid them more than you know other others might be paid. Um, and it was made easier for us as mm-hmm. a result of that. Uh, when I think back on it, I, I mean, uh, granted, an awful lot of this I've completely <laughs> forgotten. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, we didn't end up going to court. We didn't end up having to do anything that would have yeah. been terrifying. That's right. Alex, I'll, yeah. miss, I'll, miss, I'll miss everybody. Well, but I'm we re- still have another episode. Another one, and then we are going off to our hiatus and coming back in season two. Guys, I would I, point out that we can just like talk because <laughs> this isn't a two-way podcast. We can just be at home talking. We could carry the microphones around and pretend <laughs> that we're doing a podcast. So, you know. You know that uh, our kids sometimes are, are uh, pretending that they're doing a podcast yes. because the microphones sometimes are in our office. So they go on the chair and... Uh, Yeah, and tempted talk. tempted though the, though we may be to do an episode where we just let them host it we will not do that to you <laughs> not not for a few years yeah though. guys if you want to keep in touch with us so of course you can email us at any time but um, I'm opening a Facebook group uh, for daddy squares listeners and of course Alex and I are going to be there um, if you want to talk to us or, or find each other or meet each other or talk to each other you're welcome to do so all you have to do is just you Log on to Facebook at Daddy Square. You'll find it there. I'll put on the link. And, you know, it matters to us so much because as much as podcasts are us uh, and our interviewees coming to you via your phones or what have you, we really want this thing to be a community and we want it to be yes. an opportunity to share ideas. And uh, we, we really want to hear from you in any of the many, many ways uh, other than faxing, which we do not support. Yes. I think that uh, if, uh, if you guys... have something that really helped you 
It doesn't matter what it is. For example, with babies, the first thing that came into my mind that really helped us was the Baby, Baby Connect app. Oh, Remember that? That's amazing. This so episode brought to you by, by the Baby, Baby Connect, Connect app. app. It's like $2.99. Uh, we downloaded it. And what it allows you to do, when, if, especially if you have newborns, it allows you to kind of track the time, like when the baby ate and pooped and like all the things that you actually have to track. Uh, it was very, very valuable uh, to us. It also was uh, good when we talked to our doctors and, you know, they ask all these questions. We just have the data. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, was, a, it was a great app. I so, mean, I, I think especially when you have twins and especially when you have two parents and maybe a nanny or other helper and you need to keep track of all of this between those. Yeah. It was great. So if you have something like this, um, you know, like little stuff that can help other parents, Please share share them on our Facebook group. I, I'll also try to get all of our guests from all of this season into the group. So if you have specific questions, maybe they can talk to you or answer or advice or just listen. That would be great. Guys, see you next week and happy holidays. Happy holidays and bye thank bye. you for listening.